Okay, welcome back to The Highest Good. Um, I'm Sam. Uh, if you enjoyed our episode last week, I hope you did. Um, this week, I wanted to do a little bit different. And so, okay, so my idea of how I was going to lay it out is I was going to do um, a secular work one week, and then the next week I would do a theological work, something theological, and then I would go back to the secular, and I would do like every other week I'd do secular and then theological. And so this week, um, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the opening of the Gospel of John um, and some of the reflections that I had um, on that chapter one specifically of the Gospel of John. Um, and so we'll talk about that and I'll leave you with some thoughts to think about. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll make some theological inferences. Okay. Cause not only do I want to help you find the philosopher within, but I'd also like to help you find the theologian within, because I think if you're a theist or if you're a Christian a Muslim, if you're a, uh, any sort of theist, you know, you're a, the- you're also a theologian. So I'd like to explore some of that. So we'll start with the opening of the Gospel of John, um, chapter 1. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I'll, in my notes, I have the verses. So I'll tell you what verse I'm reading or and what verse we're talking about. So, okay, the book of John gives us clear indication that Jesus existed before he was born. So, uh, John calls Jesus the Word, okay? And he says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that's John 1, 1. And I'm using the King James Version, by the way. So, we see that um, at the outset, Jesus was there. The Word was there. Um, So... uh, He then writes later in verse 10, he says, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. So we see Jesus to have been present when the world was created by God. So in other words, Jesus was not created by God, but rather that Jesus was there when the world was created. So we see an even stronger assertion in that because um, John writes, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And that's John 1, 3, again, King James Bible. So we get right at the start um, indications of Jesus' divinity. So it's integral to his message that we understand that Jesus is God. They are the same thing. Uh, we must also understand though that whenever jesus was jesus is god incarnate and so um in order for jesus to be incarnate uh some divinity uh has to be uh diminished in some way so um for instance paul the the saint paul writes let this mind be in you um which was also in christ jesus who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. 
and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And that's Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Um, so Schofield, um, who wrote one of the most famous, uh, well, I say wrote, he has one of the most famous uh, study Bibles, um, King James study Bibles. I have, that's my Bible that I use. Um, he says that Jesus in his human form did not empty himself of his divine nature or attributes, but rather only the outward and visible form of the Godhead. But um, I think, I mean, we see that in the fact that Jesus could perform miracles, but um, I think uh, it might be implied in the shifting of form, some loss of power, because how could he have died if he remained his eternal self? So the conclusion can be drawn that Jesus, while on earth, did strip himself of majesty and power to some degree so that he can enact the perfect sacrifice and actually be a human. And by becoming a human where he was God before, um, it would be uh, logically inconsistent to say that he did not lose any power. Um, now, I say that, and it's not to say that he couldn't have regained his power at any point on at any point in time while he was on earth, but rather that he chose not to so that he could serve as a sacrifice. And he also was tempted, you know, uh, since he was human, um, you know, Satan tempted him in the, in the desert. Um, in verses four through five, we get, uh, and this is all chapter one of, of the gospel of John. Um, in verses four through five, we get some, also some um, theologically interesting assertions. <clears throat> John writes, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Again, that's John 1, 4 through 5, King James. Um, so life being in Jesus is a direct callback to him being the one that created the world. Um, and so we also know that sin brings death. And that's, I say that, I quote that from Romans 6, 23, which is the famous verse that's uh, for the wages of sin is death. Um, so because that gives us a reason to say that sin cannot be in the presence of Jesus, because if, Jesus, if in Jesus is life, then anything that brings death or the opposite of life cannot be there. And so sin couldn't have been created or endorsed or allowed by God. Now, that seems like a fairly obvious conclusion, but it implies something about the enemy. And that is that the enemy brings death. So if God exists as a perfectly good being, then there must also be a perfectly evil being where one being brings perfect life. Um, there must be one that brings perfect death. So we see that in this passage in verses 4 through 5 that they highlight the difference between the light and the dark. Um, Jesus is the response to sin. In a world dominated by sin, a.k.a. darkness, Jesus shines as a light. John then says that the darkness comprehended it not. In this instance, we may make the inference that um, darkness could be uh, 
equated with sin or anything of the enemy, um, it, and if that's correct, then could the argument be made that if the enemy truly understood God, it would not be the enemy? So <clears throat> that's, you know, that's a, that's, that's quite an inference to make, to draw from this verse. Um, but we know that deception is a tactic that the enemy employs, um, taking God's word or love for us and twisting it. And we see that from Jesus's time in the desert. Um, but is it safe to okay. So if we look at the history of the enemy, um, you know, we say it's Christian tradition that, um, uh, Lucifer was uh, th the most beautiful angel, and he fell from grace because, um, uh, but say he fell from heaven. So he rebelled against God. And so could it be safe to say that had he understood God's perfection and um, God's perfect love, then he would not have had any reason to rebel because if he had a correct understanding of god and god's love why would he have rebelled now that's not to say that sin is the result of ignorance of what is right but some have said that and it's valid in some specific scenarios but that's not what i'm saying rather it's clear that the enemy and its demons have misconstrued god for if they understood god fully they would have realized that there's no reason to rebel against him because he is perfect in every way is it too far to presume that all of human evil, suffering, and sin is the result of some misunderstanding? Perhaps. Now, that's a bold claim, and I, I'm happy to hear what what my listeners think about that. So um, send me an email um, or a message and let me know what you think, because um, I think that's I'm not saying that I endorse that view, but I'm saying that's a view that could be drawn um, based off interpretation of the scripture. Um, so then we, I wanted to talk a little bit more about that misunderstanding um, and how that can happen. Um, so we see Jesus dismiss the Sadducees in Matthew 22, verses 23 through 33. Um for misunderstanding the scriptures. Uh, Matthew writes, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. It is of um, particular note that Jesus specifies their misunderstanding of scripture is also coupled with the misunderstanding of God. God is revealed to us most clearly um, in the scripture, and so to misconstrue the scripture is to misconstrue the nature of God. Um, the way I see it, some sort of um, okay, some sort of dichotomy is set up in the Gospels between the worldly and the divine. So, um, representatives of the world, uh, including the enemy, are most clearly seen in the Sadducees and the Pharisees. You know, they have their interpretations of Scripture and they um, live according to the law, um, and they believe themselves to be spotless and believing that God would look upon them in favor because of their interpretations. But they're mistaken in their interpretations. And what they fail to realize is the divine component of the law as seen through Jesus. Um, he says in Matthew 5, 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. 
I am come not to destroy, but to fulfill. So a proper understanding of the law requires the existence of some fulfillment. Otherwise, it's incomplete. So that's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were missing. Now, it, it must be clarified that that might not have been their intention to purposely miss such an important detail, but rather that they were deceived. Their um, worldly interpretation was undoubtedly fueled by the enemy. They thought that they were righteous because of their interpretation. And the enemy had fooled them into thinking that their interpretation was correct and that they understood God. However, um, because the enemy lacks an understanding of God and wants to prevent others from reaching an understanding of God, they were wrong. Now, some would argue that the enemy knew very well the love of God and rejected it, and they would be able to find scripture to back that up. And I'm not here to refute those claims, but I'm just sort of trying to explore all the conceptions of the relationship between God, the enemy, and humans. The phrase, the darkness comprehended it not, can be interpreted it in, in many different ways. And my goal is to just consider an interpretation that might not have been considered before. Not necessarily to endorse it, but rather to just explore it. Um, so moving on, later in verse 10, uh, John writes, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. And that's verse 10, King James Version. Uh, that only furthers the interpretation we were just talking about. Those in the world, including the enemy, did not understand or know Jesus in the proper way. But, okay, perhaps, though, that is our purpose for being on earth, is to seek out to understand Jesus in the proper sense. And maybe the enemy and its demons have rejected to even begin that purpose to understand. And that is where the conflict comes. Instead of... Uh, seeking to fully understand God, the enemy has rejected that course of action in favor of understanding itself. Um, to understand God fully would take an eternity, and that implies that our earthly lives are but a small stepping stone of that journey. Um, the enemy has maybe impatience and wants the goods that come from such an understanding without going on the journey to understand um, because God requires such a journey, the enemy rejects and antagonizes him and all those who do seek to go on that journey. So the enemy tries to prevent humans from beginning such a journey. Rather, the enemy would prefer that humans seek out to understand human things. It wants us to go into despair at our current human condition rather than understanding that condition on an eternal timeline. Um, for if um, we do not understand uh, eternal life, then this life, our physical life, is all there is. A, a human's lifespan is the entirety of its existence, which may be somewhat similar to an existential view. Um, existential Existentialism is... Um, uh, typically an atheist view uh, in which uh, there's no predetermined anything in life. Uh, there's no predetermined meaning. Uh, there's no God, so there's no purpose. There's no meaning. And so you, as an individual, make your own meaning in life. 
Um, but I, I need to clarify that what I'm, I'm not saying that existentialism is a school of thought of the enemy. Um, what I am saying, though, is that I think that the enemy would have us be existentialist, uh, filled, filled with dread and hopelessness. Now, most existentialists, like uh, Sartre, uh, who's an atheist, still elicit some kind of hope. For Sartre, it was a, it was human freedom. Um, and then you have Christian existentialists like Kierkegaard. The solution to existential dread was, as he put it, a leap of faith, faith in God, that is. Um, in terms of existentialism, the enemy would have us only do step one, and that is um, despair at our human condition and our life that is seemingly so incredibly finite. And it would have us stop there. However, what Jesus does is to help us understand that this life is not all there is, okay? Where the enemy would have us ignorant of the eternal timeline, Jesus wants it to be at the front of our focus. Therefore, we should not despair for the troubles of this world or but a blip on the eternal timeline that Jesus gives us the opportunity to fit in. Now, that is also interesting because maybe it gives us reason why God forgives our sins. Because if we look at existence on a timeline from God's perspective, sin only seems to happen when we exist physically in the world. So in terms of eternity, those sins seem rather small since they can take place in the span of, say, 90 years compared to an infinity. If we, however, think that all we have is 90 years and nothing more, then it's easy for sins to become a ball and chain weighing us down with guilt and shame because we have such a short life and we screwed it up so much. Again, that's what the enemy uh, probably would want you to think. Um, we must step back and view our existence on an eternal timeline. Acknowledging our sin and repenting from it removes the small blip on the timeline and allows us to enter into the presence of God for all of the rest of existence, and that is eternity. We must remember that the enemy would have us not realize this. Um, we must keep in mind that the enemy seeks to inhibit our understanding of God and eternity. It would have us revel in our sin and our short, seemingly finite lives. Ninety years is all we have. That's, that's what the enemy says. How meaningless is such a short span of time? You know, look at all the sins you've done in such a short nine decades. There is no God. There is no eternity. You know, once you die, you cease to exist. Such lies must be cast out and rejected by us. So basically, existentialism without hope fills us with dread and despair. You know, life is not meaningless, but it, rather it's an opportunity for us to grow closer to God. So um, John continues in verse 14. He says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So again, this continues our discussion of um, Jesus' um, humanness. Um, in fact, uh, John even says, uh, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And that's verse 11. Um, this, of course, um, okay, carries interesting ramifications because it asserts that Jesus was fully human while on earth. Um, the implications of such a position imply, as we said earlier, some diminishment of power. Uh, in order to truly understand the human condition, Jesus had to become human. 
However, we obviously can assert that he retained some power as we see his miracles. The question, though, is whether Jesus remained omnipotent while a human. And omnipotent meaning he knows everything. Um, so, John writes, Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. That's John 1, 48-49. So, here we see that Jesus remained some form of omnipotence. You know, he, Nathanael's reaction seems to imply that he thought no one saw him under that fig tree. And because Jesus did, he must be some higher being, some son of God, because only God could have known that. Um, the argument might be made that Jesus' power of knowledge um, might have been limited to those on earth at the present moment. So earthly omnipotence. Um, perhaps he knew everything about everyone and everywhere on earth while he walked on earth. However, his knowledge of heavenly things was limited. This, of course, um, harkens back to Cullison, who argues that um, who argues for uh, the problem of divine hiddenness. And the fact what that how that argument is laid out is essentially that. Um, if God seeks a relationship with all of his creations, then there would be no reasonable unbelief because God would make himself known so that it would be obvious to everyone that we should believe in God. And um, so that's called the problem of divine hiddenness. There are people who, be who don't believe in God, not because they reject uh, evidence, but because their rationality, their they want to believe, but they just can't. Their brain won't let them. So, if but see the problem is that if God existed and wanted a relationship with all of His beings, He would make His existence obvious, so that there would be no reasonable unbelief. There would only be belief or rejection. So. Cullison says that if it were obvious that God was present and that a rewarding afterlife was to come after death, then there would be no true morally perfect sacrifice. For instance, if I jump in front of a train to push a child off the tracks, my sacrifice will be immediately rewarded if I know God is real and that I'm going to heaven. Because God's existence is obvious to me, I'm not really behaving in a moral manner because my sacrifice is not really a sacrifice because my afterlife will be rewarded. It is only through uncertainty about at the afterlife or the existence of God that a morally perfect sacrifice can be obtained. If I jump in front of the train for the child and I am doubtful about the outcome of after death because I do not know if God is real or if there is an afterlife, then my sacrifice takes on a whole new light. I give up my certainty for this child. So what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, look at what Jesus said on the cross. Um, now, okay, I'm not probably not going to pronounce this right, but I will say the English right after it's in the verse. So Matthew writes, uh, when this is while Jesus on the cross, 
Um, he says, And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Ila, Ila, lama sabachthani. That is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's on Matthew 27, 46. So I did some research. I looked up the word forsake in the Oxford English Dictionary, and it said that um, it is to abandon, leave entirely, or withdraw from. In other words, God hid himself from Jesus. Now, Callison says that um, God hid from Jesus and elicited feelings of uncertainty and doubt within Jesus so that his sacrifice could be a truly morally perfect sacrifice. For Jesus' sacrifice to be valid, he needed to be uncertain of the outcome. Hence comes the traditional Christian legend that Jesus descended into hell after he died. Um, so we may come to see that the diminishment of some of Jesus' abilities while in his human form is not incompatible with his power as God. So um, because Jesus was uncertain about the outcome of his death, his sacrifice was perfect. Um, seemingly is what Cullison seems to be arguing. I could have the interpretation wrong, but that, I think that's what he's arguing. Uh, but there are some implications uh, left to be explored in verse 9, um, in which John, uh, John chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, in which he writes, That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Firstly, the phrase cometh into the world uh, might imply some previous existence before birth. To come into is to go from one position to another position. So we may make the claim that every man that cometh into the world had to go from some previous existence to their earthly existence. Um, rather controversially, we may make the connection with um, Plato's theory of recollection um, in that our souls came into the physical world from the realm of forms and that life is the relearning of those forms. Now, I haven't talked about Plato's theory of forms, but I am going to at a later podcast. Um, but this has interesting implications because is it a fair assumption to say that a human's existence is preceded by some pre-birth life? Um, let me explore why I don't believe that's the case. So, Um, we have to make the assumption based off the scripture that God um, desires a relationship with each of his creatures. So existing before birth in a realm with God would put us with God and therefore our relationship would be formed. However, um, we are born into the physical world and we have to learn a to develop a relationship with God. Therefore, there can't be a pre-birth existence because why would God voluntarily separate us from him in the in the physical world um but even if you don't believe that's the case and i don't um then uh why does that not seem satisfying because if our souls are eternal that is um we have to uh operate under the assumption that they are we of course get that from plato who said that the soul is essentially alive and the difference between a living body and a dead body is that something is in it that makes it alive and the dead body does not have it, and that is a soul. So, <clears throat> if the soul is essentially alive, it can never die. That does not mean that it cannot be destroyed or removed by, from existence, but that would take an act of God. If we have 
an eternal soul then? Can we really say that our souls do not already exist before we are born? And that is to say, um, do they, uh, if they're eternal, um, have they always existed? And I don't think so because, um, really, you know, I don't think being eternally alive is the same thing as being infinite. Um, and I say that because um, God had to create something when he created man. And so he might have given us eternal souls. Um, but that doesn't mean that they've always existed. And so at some point God had to speak into existence a soul for man. So, and from that moment of speaking to into existence an eternal soul then it became internal so basically i'm saying i think god could have created eternal souls for us <clears throat> so okay that's all i had for john chapter one um i am about to hit 30 minutes which is about the same length as the first episode so i think i'm gonna call it right now um, but I am very happy to hear what, what anyone else likes, thinks about this chapter. Um, and I encourage you to read it, um, on your own time and see what theologically in interesting inferences you can make. Uh, next week, um, we'll be covering Plato's, uh, Socrates' apology. Um, and when I say the word apology, I don't mean he's sorry i mean a, def a defense so we'll see what socrates has for us next week um, in the meantime i will see you soon